many of you have already been reading from the Believe book, uh, but some may not be aware what the book looks like. This book is mostly scripture. And so while we're uh, reading and thinking through a lot of things that are here done topically in this book, I want to just remind you that this is the Word of God. And next week we're actually going to be studying about the Word of God and uh, that we believe this book to be the inspired, infallible Word of God. Um, and so when you hear passages of Scripture, even though I may pick this up at times, these are passages of Scripture at the same time. And as we go to the Word of God together this morning, I'd like to invite you to stand with me, please, and let's pray that our hearts would be open and that the Word of God would come forth clearly, understandably today. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, these are your words. Not every word that I will speak uh, we can give to you, but these words from the Word of God are yours, that you have expressly chosen them, and you've inspired people through the ages to write these words down so that you might reveal yourself and your plan of salvation to us. We bow before you today. We are ready to receive, ready to hear your word. And I pray, Lord, that uh, anything I say would, would not be, get in the way of that, would not add any confusion to that, but that your word would ring forth clearly and understandably today. Bless your people as we hear from you. Help us um, to understand, to grow, and to love you even more than before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? You know, not, not long after this book, the Bible opens with the book of Genesis. You know, it's really 66 books put together. We read about the creation of mankind. God first created Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden. And soon after that, Adam began observing the various animals that God had created, and he was given the task of naming each one of them. But then Adam noticed a discrepancy. <laughs> there was no creature that perfectly corresponded to him. He saw male and female sheep, and male and female elephants, and male and female mon monkeys, and male and female zebras, and so on. But there was no female counterpart to him. He noticed. Imagine that. So Adam realized that he was incomplete, which of course God already knew. He was ready for this. And God caused Adam to go into a deep sleep, and he took a rib from his side, and from that rib he created Eve, the first woman. She became the mother, so to speak, of all human beings after her. She and Adam are our parents. They are our ancestors. Even before they had their first child, this was God's plan. So Adam and Eve are placed in this perfect garden, this garden of paradise, where they could live forever. They are given everything they could possibly ever need, paradise on earth. And they were basically given only one rule. And what was that rule? Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was for their own good that God gave this rule. And yet, it was like holding candy in front of a child. Very soon, Eve was deceived by the serpent, who is the devil, who lied to her with half-truths. And very soon after that, both Adam and Eve had both sinned by eating of the tree God had forbidden them to eat of. So let's read together this morning from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals 
the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the trees in the garden, any tree? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's some truth in that that he said, but he didn't tell them all the truth. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Threw it right under the bus, didn't he? <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. <laughs> now, that's pretty funny, I think. It's true to nature, true to our nature, that we try to blame our mistakes on someone else. They both had eaten of the forbidden fruit. They both hid in the garden because they knew for the first time what their sin was about, that, that they were laid bare before God. It wasn't just that they were physically naked, but their souls were naked before God, and so they hid from it. They didn't want God to see them like that. And when they were confronted, they both blamed someone else. Continuing with verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you. Above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that is friction, hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. After sin entered the world, through Adam and Eve's fateful choice, all of their descendants, including us, have a fallen nature, a sinful nature. This sinful nature makes us prone to sin. It gives us a disposition towards sin. That is, this nature makes it easier for us to sin than not to sin. Have you noticed? Is there anybody here this morning that would claim, this is not true of me? I do not have... A sinful nature. I do not have a fleshly nature. I do not have it built into me that I would rather sin than not sin. Anybody? That's what I thought. It's true of every person, every person I've ever met. 
This is a nature. And we fight that nature. We don't know what to do about that nature. And I want you to notice that behind the scene is this guy named Satan. He's a serpent. He is Satan. He is a devil. He's pictured here in Genesis as a master deceiver, as a manipulator. He's out to trip us up. He's eventually hoping to destroy us so that we will share the same fate he has. In John 10.10, Jesus called him a thief, a killer, and a destroyer. He is our sworn enemy, and from the get-go, he is our enemy. As a result, we are all under a death sentence. Um, You may not sense that all the time, but the reality is that if you stay right there, stay with a sinful nature and a life of sin, you are under a death sentence already. Not only physical death, which Adam and Eve have already experienced, but also spiritual death, or we might call it eternal death, which is separation from God forever. Thank God that through the power of Jesus Christ, the power of sin and death has been broken. By God's grace, we can be saved from our sins, and even the attraction of our sinful natures towards sin can be broken as God changes our hearts. And this is, in fact, what we want to learn today in today's lesson from the Belief series. The key belief for today states this. I believe a person comes into a right relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We read in Lesson three's Bible passages about Adam and Eve's fall into sin. We read that all of us have taken our turn falling into sin also. Every human being except Jesus Christ has taken this same path. And we need a Savior. So God promised Eve way back then that someone would come from her seed that would eventually overcome and defeat the devil. Now let's go on with our stories. We also read about Moses in the Passover, didn't we? This is the story of the Israelites' bondage in Egypt and how God broke Pharaoh's hold on them and set them free. Ten plagues were visited upon Egypt, remember. And the tenth plague, the last plague, was the death of the firstborn, remember? And on that fateful night, the death angel of God flew across Egypt to kill the firstborn child in every household. Why? Because Pharaoh had said, I still won't let you go. And God visited this final plague. And in the homes where the blood of the Passover lamb had been painted on the doorpost, the firstborn of that household was spared. So the Israelites were told to sacrifice a perfect lamb for each household and put the blood on their doorposts. And the death angel took flight. And after Pharaoh's firstborn and all the other firstborns of Egypt had been killed, Pharaoh finally let the Jews leave Egypt to leave their bondage. This event and its commemoration is known as Passover. Maybe you wondered where that was. They passed over their houses when the death angel came. This is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of God's grace in sending Jesus as our sacrificial lamb. And now, if we are sprinkled by the blood of Christ, by believing in him, we too escape death and go free. And we went on to Isaiah. Isaiah made some very interesting and amazing prophecies about Jesus' crucifixion, didn't he? He said things like this, his appearance was disfigured beyond that of any human being. He was despised and rejected by man, 
a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. So Isaiah, years, hundreds of years before Jesus' crucifixion, accurately portrayed what horrible scene that would be. All of these prophecies point to the fact that Jesus substituted his life for ours. He was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins once for all. He stood in our place. He took our punishment upon himself. He willingly gave up his life and no one took it from him. Jesus' execution was horrible. You ever see Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ? Probably the most graphic illustration of that that I've ever seen. It's hard to watch that movie. How many of you went back and watched it three or four times? We don't do that. It's too horrible. To see what Jesus literally did for us. Two people uh, of you asked some questions a lot of people did, but the same basic question came to me. Why did Jesus have to go through that? Why did God put him through that? Why couldn't God just come up with a different plan? Why did it have to be so horrible what Jesus went through when he was beaten and when he was put on the cross and suffered such a humiliating, painful death? Someone asked, couldn't God have made another way? Why, why did Jesus have to say at the end, Father, why have you forsaken me? Did, did, did that really happen is the question. It's so sad to think that God would forsake him. I want you to know something this morning. This is the expression of God's love for you. This is expression of how much God loves you and I. That Jesus would take our sins upon himself and that he would suffer the humiliation and the pain and the, the, the total torture of a death on the cross and even more, separation from his Father for the first time and only time. Because sin was heaped upon Jesus, God turned away. God did not take the easy way out. He was true to himself. He was true to his word. He played by his own rules, however you want to put it. In Jesus' death by crucifixion, God showed how horribly ugly sin is. He showed how awful and real the punishment for sin is. He showed what hell is like. Jesus lived hell so that we would know what he was saving us from. When Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, everything changed. It changed everything. At the moment of his death, there's signs of that. There's the curtain in the temple between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. You know, this separated God from the people, even from the priests. And only one priest would go in once a year into that Holy of Holies to meet God. This was a very rare thing. And on that day when Jesus died, that temple curtain was torn from top to bottom and God opened up the doors. No longer do we have to have access to God through someone else, through some mediator. We are accessed to God. And on that day, there were tombs opened in Jerusalem. People uh, that had been holy people of God that had died previously to this, their graves were open. Not only were their graves open, but they came back to life and they started walking around and talking to people and showing themselves to people, you know, that, hey, we're alive again. Amazing things are happening on this day when Jesus died. On the third day after his death, Jesus rose from the grave also. 
never to die again. And he appeared first to the women who came to anoint his body for burial, then to many others on several occasions. And then he ascended back to heaven so that his spirit could come to earth to be with all believers at the same time. Let's move on. The day of Pentecost. Fifty days later, after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes upon the followers of Jesus with great power, and they preach the good news of Jesus for the first time. They preach the good news of Jesus that we could be saved from our sins. And 3,000 of the Jews who heard this gospel message responded by placing their faith, their trust in Jesus to save them. And then all of them were baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of their sins. And when they received the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the church of Jesus Christ was launched. It was begun. Now, if you read chapter 3, you remember a Jewish leader named Nicodemus. We're going to spend a little time with Nicodemus here. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He sought out Jesus at night. He basically asked him if he was the one God had been promising all along, promising would come. Jesus didn't answer that question, but rather turned the conversation And he said this, he said, a person can only get into the kingdom of God if they are born again. And Nicodemus was totally confused by that. He thought it would talk about physical birth. And Jesus said, no, I'm talking about something beyond that, the idea of a rebirth spiritually. You must be born of the water and the spirit. And it was in this same faithfully important conversation that Jesus said these words, John 3, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that is Jesus, must be lifted up on the cross, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Did you realize how many times belief is mentioned in those few words of Jesus? Belief, the emphasis is on believing. No doubt Nicodemus had been counting on his good works to get him into heaven. So it was a shock when Jesus said, we must be spiritually reborn. That is a traumatic experience. That means you go back and you become like a child and something happens to you that you don't really have a control over. Nicodemus needed to know that no amount of good works would ever counteract the bad things that he had done. In fact, Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, and this death that it's speaking of is spiritual death, eternal death. And because of this, sin and the weight and the wages of sin, we are powerless to save ourselves. Jesus said, if you don't believe, you're condemned already. That's what he's saying. All of us are condemned already. We are condemned by the sinful choices we have made. We are condemned by our sinful nature that we have not figured out a way to conquer, that we have not figured out a way to say no to, and we stand condemned before God. Every one of us, until we believe in Jesus. We all stand condemned before God because of what we have done. Eternal death is the penalty we deserve. We can't balance the scales with good works. 
or acts of charity or even great sacrifices that we would make for God or someone else. And we are powerless before sin and its ravages. But there is good news. Because the Word of God says in Romans 5, 6-8, which Dave quoted in our communion time, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, you and me. And now, how do we receive what Jesus has done? Jesus gave up his life so that we could go free. How do we receive such a wonderful gift? What, to receive what God is offering, we must believe. It's simple. Believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Believe that he alone can save us from our sins. We must truly believe in this in our hearts and, and surrender to him as our leader. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess your faith and are saved. On the day of Pentecost, when the good news of Jesus was first preached, the people in the crowd were convicted of their sinfulness before God. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, they said, Brothers, what shall we do about this? You know, What shall we do about where we are, the situation? How can we be saved, in other words? And Peter replied in Acts 2, 39, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is the way you answer this. This is the way you respond to your condition, your situation. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. God is calling us to believe in Jesus. He is calling us to repent, turn away from our sin, to be baptized, to be saved from our sins. And why does he call us to do that? Because God doesn't want any of his children to be lost. He wants all of us to come back to him through Jesus. He has made the way home possible through his son Jesus, and he did so by paying the price of salvation himself. That is God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one and boast. See, grace, if somebody made this alliteration, is very simply this. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is a gift. It is a gift of God's favor. It is not deserved. It is not earned. It is given out of the graciousness of the giver. He wants us to be saved, and so he has provided a way for us to be saved. It's, it's kind of hard to receive grace, though, isn't it? My question for you this morning is, have you experienced this grace in your life? Maybe grace is, sad, is something you have trouble accepting. Charles Stanley tells that one of his seminary professors 
finish an exam in one of their classes in a very unusual way. There's a very difficult evangelism course. There have been a lot of scriptures to memorize, a lot of things they need to learn, how all the pieces fit together throughout the New Testament and even into the Old. And they got in for the final exam. And at the, the, the beginning, as he was passing out the test, he made this statement. And he says, I want you to be very clear about this. He says, I want you to read all the way through the exam before you begin answering any question on it. Read all the way to the end, then go back and begin the test. And at the top of the exam, as they received their copies of it, had the same caution. Read all the way through the exam to the end of it before you begin answering any questions. So they got the test, they started. And he says, if we read the test, it became unquestioningly clear that we had not studied nearly enough. It was the hardest test we'd ever seen. It was awful. The further we read, the worse it got. About halfway uh, through, audible groans started to be heard around the classroom as they're getting ready to take this test, as they're reading through it. But on the last page was a note that read, you have a choice now. You can either complete the exam as given, or you can sign your name at the bottom and in so doing, receive an A for this exam. Wow. We said, they're stunned, he said. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A? You know, turn it back in with your name on it? And slowly the point dawned on us. It was the point of grace. If you get it, you get an A. If you don't get it, it's going to be awful. <laughs> he says, so we, some of us turn it in, but some didn't. He noticed some people going back and taking the test. Thought, what are they doing? So he went back in afterwards to talk with the professor, and he shared some of the reactions he had received through the years, because he had done this apparently year after year with that class. And some students began to take the exam without reading it all the way through. You know, they're just too eager. So they started answering, going all the way through, and then they get to this and oh man, I didn't have to do all this. All they do is sign my name. Others read the first two pages. It was so difficult they got angry, and they just stormed out of the test. They just left the whole thing blank and said, forget it. I can't pass that test. They never even realized what was available because they'd never read the last page. One fellow, however, read the whole test, including the note at the end, but he decided he would take the exam anyway because he didn't want any gifts. He wanted to earn his grade. And so he did. He got a C plus when he could easily have had an A. This story illustrates how many people react to God's solution to sin. Some people look at God's standard, moral and ethical perfection, and they throw their hands up and surrender. Why even try? And they just give up. I could never live up to that. Others are like the student who read the test through and was aware of the professor's offer, but took the test anyway, unwilling to simply receive God's gift of forgiveness, they set about to rack up enough points that God has to let them in. And it's impossible to do that. You'd be lucky to get a C plus in the final exam of God. God's grace truly is like the professor's offer. It may seem unbelievable, but if we accept it, then like the stunned Students who accepted the professor's offer, we too will discover that yes, God's grace truly is free. All we have to do is accept it, receive it. Grace is a gift of God's favor. So let me mention two truths that will radically 
transform your thinking. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. The second truth is this. There is nothing you can do that will make God love you less. Hard to imagine. That's not how we react. That's not how we act toward each other. That's not how we respond to somebody who offended us or hurt us or, or sinned against us. But it is the heart of God. Like a gift, the only thing we can do with grace is receive it. Do you believe that salvation comes only through Jesus? That's what Lesson 3 is about. Do you believe that people are saved because of what Jesus did, not because of what they do? That's what we're learning this week. Our key belief is this. I believe a person comes into a right relationship with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, if you took all of the scriptures that talk about salvation and you tried to make kind of a composite of the response of how do you receive this gift of Christ through the offer of grace, you come down to a bottom line that most Christians can agree to. Most Christians do agree to. The bottom line is simply this. Salvation is found in no one but Jesus. That's the root of it all. Only in Jesus can you be saved. And then the Bible says to receive what Jesus is offering, to receive a free gift that you can't earn, that you cannot do enough to, to merit. You just need to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You need to believe in your heart that he is the only Savior that can save you from your sins. And we must truly repent and be willing to be changed by God from the inside out. That's just an offer of a heart that says, God, I don't have it together, but I need you to change my life. And then we profess that faith by our words and even by our baptism into Christ to show the world whom we are trusting for our salvation. Simple receiving of an offer that is free. Absolutely free. God's grace is scandalous in what it's offering. You don't have to go and rack up a bunch of merit points. You don't have to go and, and, and satisfy some quest and go on a pilgrimage and, and, and make up for all the wrongs you have done in your life. You couldn't possibly do that. And grace is the opposite of what we expect, the opposite of what we deserve. And grace turns everything upside down, but it is the offer that God makes. Now, some of you today that have not received God's grace may feel like you don't deserve this. That God must not know you. Must not know what you've done. But that is the very point. God does. God knows everywhere you've been, everything you've been involved in. He knows all the mistakes you've made. He has, has uh, felt your rebellion, your rejection. He has, he has heard your pride. He has heard your self-centeredness. He's seen all of the damage you've done in situations to other people. You've seen, he's seen what you've done to his own heart. And he loves you anyway. Because remember, there's not anything you can do that could make God love you more. There's not anything you could do that could make God love you less. And because salvation is a gift, God only requires that we receive it with humility and gratitude. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him 
and he with me. Now, he was talking to a specific church in the book of Revelation, but he was saying something that could apply to all of us. I'm here standing at the door. I'm not going to force my way into your heart. I'm not going to force you to open that door of your heart, but I offer, and I'm there day after day because God loves us enough that Jesus Christ wants to have this personal relationship with each one of us. And I want you to picture this morning, if you will, Jesus standing there at the door of your heart, just knocking and knocking and knocking, waiting for you to open your heart and to believe in Him and receive the grace He is offering you. Invite Him in. Invite Him in today. We'll give you the opportunity to do that. We're going to be singing a song in just a couple minutes. A song of, of just... Uh, the amazing grace he's offering here. An opportunity for you to have your chains broken and for you to go free in Christ and experience a new life that he offers to you. But you have to make the decision to receive the offer he's making. And I hope you'll do that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your love. Uh, it, it just astounds us that when we have offended you, when we failed you, when we've rebelled against you, when we have hurt you so deeply and so consistently at times. Your love just keeps pouring it on to us. It's just, just amazing that your grace really, really would do what you've done for us in Christ. The offer is steady. The offer is constant for us to return to you. From the moment we're born until the day we die, we were battling a lot of things here in this life. We were battling ourselves, our own selfish nature. And we admit today, Father, that, that we have, every one of us, fallen short of what you wanted. All of us have sinned. And the wages for that sin is death. Father, I ask that you be on our hearts today. That Jesus, as he knocks at our heart's door, would find receptivity, would it find openness and a willingness to allow him in. Someone is here today that has never made this step, has never received Christ by believing in him. May they take that powerful, amazing step today by your grace, through your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing a song. If you have any decision to share